Good morning. Good morning. Second week in a row we've needed folding chairs. So we're going to put out more uh, next week for all of our services so you won't be, you know, do welcome. This way you don't have to sit in the seats of shame. <laughs> right here, okay? So uh, that's going to happen. And, uh, you know, when it comes to planning your arrival for Good Friday and Easter, plan accordingly. Otherwise, we will escort you to the seats of shame because they will be the only ones left. So um, it's cool to be part of a family that's growing. My name's Kyle. I get to be the pastor here at Regen, and I'm super thankful to have you here. Um, today is Palm Sunday, which is a really cool day uh, in the life of the people of Jesus. It kicks off Holy Week, which is our journey into uh, Easter Sunday. So here's what our journey looks like today. Um, after worship, Rodeo the donkey will be here. Jesus rode into the streets on a donkey. I don't know if it was named Rodeo or not, but I like to think it was. And uh, so Rodeo will be here. Actually, we decided last minute to also have a very small Easter egg hunt for the kids right after church in the Otterbein room. So that'll be happening. We've got donuts. We've got coffee. Feel free to hang around for that. Yes, good job, Jack. So that'll be really cool. Um, a couple other, so then we have Good Friday, which is this coming Friday at 7 p.m., and then Easter is at 11.15 a.m., uh, and we're really looking forward to all of uh, that, and uh, really excited about some of the sermons that are kind of coming together about all of those things. A few other things going on in the life of our church, just so we know. Um, if you have a smartphone, feel free to pull it out. Uh, and check in on Facebook, and actually it also works on Instagram, we figured out. Uh, check in on Facebook or Instagram. Uh, we will make a micro donation on your behalf to Bella Women's Center, which is an organization that we love a whole lot, and we're like at least three people at our church are employed, or two. So that's cool. Um, two other things, uh, or one other thing, um, night of prayer. So the last, is that the last Thursday of this month? What day is that, like the 25th? Uh, is going to be our second night of prayer. So we did a night of prayer uh, at the end of March and just really enjoyed being together, really liked being in God's presence. We're seeking to be people of his presence and partners in his purposes. We're seeking to be people of his presence and partners in his purposes. And so prayer is what we feel like God is inviting us to press into that with. And so if you are uncomfortable praying out loud, we structure the night so that you can grow into praying out loud because that's just one of those disciplines that we have as the people of Jesus. Um, and if you're a veteran prayer out louder, you'll really find that meaningful. And we were really excited about that. So that will be uh, Thursday, the 25th at 7 p.m. in this space. So that'll be really great, too. We're going to be ta our circles. All of them, our small groups are on a break until next fall. Uh, and so in May, you will hear about us moving back into our feast season. Feasts are where we just have dinner at somebody's house and kind of relax and play together as a spiritual family. So our rhythm together in the summer will be feasts and prayer nights and feasts and prayer nights and who knows what else God bubbles up in there too. Um, I'm going to pass around the giving buckets in a minute. We give both in a structured way and a spontaneous way as the people of Jesus. So the structured way is that weekly giving we do to advance the mission of Regen and the mission of God through Regen. Spontaneous is how we meet random needs that we are presented with. And uh, just as an example of what God is doing, I had coffee with a guy who's been in our community for a few, uh, few months now. And he was struggling with what we've come to call doubts of the head, right? So these big, heady intellectual questions about faith. 
So I'm having this conversation with him and he's meeting with me because he said, I want to get through these questions that I have. I want to get through these questions that I have so that um, I can step across the line of faith. Cool. So we're talking about big questions, da, 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 da. But then in the meantime, he's saying throughout my day, I really like to spend time. Like I like to think about things and like bring God to mind and ask God what he's thinking about. And da, 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 da. I really want to be with God a lot. And I, and I, and he's actually not saying God, he's saying with Jesus. And so we're talking about all these things. And I said to him, I said, so you're waiting to step across the line of faith. You're waiting for it to click. Right. And, and he said, well, yeah. And I said, well, what you're articulating to me is that you have a desire to be with Jesus throughout your day and to be like Jesus and to do what he says. Well, yeah. And so I said, well, if you're looking for the line of faith, you might need to look behind you uh, because you may have stepped across it at some point that you didn't even see coming. And so I'm just really excited because we're a part of a community where nobody is forcing anything down anybody's throat, but Jesus is becoming so compelling as we learn to think clearly and worship passionately that people are just wrapping their lives around him without even recognizing that they're doing it, which is really cool. So that's what you're giving supports, right? Is more people coming to know Jesus. So um, let me pray and then we'll continue worshiping. Jesus, thank you so much that you are on the move, that where two or three of us gather together, you go into action. And so, Father, would you go into action uh, with what we give this morning so that more people would know about you, that we even here would know you more deeply? Jesus, would you go into action as we gather for Good Friday and for uh, Easter Sunday so that we would hear your voice more clearly and do what you say? God, thanks for being that we get to be a church with lots of kids um, and for all of the wildness that that creates. Uh, there's a lot of joy. And so thanks for what we get to do with you. Um, even now as we give. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, Josh is right there. Okay. Jesus, we do love you this morning. You are the king of our hearts who is worthy of our affection and our attention and our time this morning. And so we ask that you would cut through the noise, the noise of what it is that uh, drowns out your voice so that we could hear from you today. So Holy Spirit, would you have free reign in this place today? pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Kids are going back with young Dan. Is that what's happening? And Miss Kayla and I don't know. Just don't run, please. There you go. Okay. We are trying to be, here's what I'm hearing a lot of lately. We are trying to be, we are becoming a community that is devoted to being people of his presence and partners in his purposes by means of thinking clearly and worshiping passionately. Thinking clearly and worshiping passionately. It is hard to do both of those things once at once. And there is a growing edge. There are people that can get their praise on in our community. And so we kind of move from there toward thinking clearly. There are people that would rather skip the worship and get right here from when I teach. We're trying to move from thinking clearly into worshiping passionately. We're going to do two things. We're not going to do either or. We're not going to 
engage in the tyranny of the or, we're going to engage ourselves with the genius of the and. So we're going to think clearly as we look at the text this morning. We're going to worship passionately because of what God says. Um, in April of 1912, a guy named Austin C. Miles sat in a cold and dreary and leaky basement in Pittman, New Jersey, which just sounds like a place you want to visit. In a windowless room, the former pharmacist put pen to paper and wrote one of the most well-loved hymns of all time. It's called In the Garden. The words say, I come to the garden alone, while the dew is still on the roses, and the voice I hear falling on my ear, the Son of God, discloses. And he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me that I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. What I love about being part of our community is there are a lot of people that have never heard that song once, and I think that's super cool. Uh, If you have heard it, you might have heard it at a funeral. I find that's when people most often want to sing that song. And I think it's because it's encouraging and hope-inspiring to think that in a moment of grief, And in a moment of disappointment, in a moment of hurt, that God's voice would be so clear and sweet and near as to cause the birds to grow quiet, so sweet and near to comfort us in times of difficulty. But depending on my mood, depending on my mood, depending on the circumstance, this hymn can either be sweetly comforting or actually, to me, hopelessly optimistic. Because there are many times when God's voice is anything but sweet. In fact, there are many times when God's voice is absent altogether. We've looked at this as we've wrestled through lament, this idea that God hides his face from us. There are moments when God's voice is absent and it is drowned out by the sheer weight of our, ang- of our anguish. And this is how it was for Jesus when, on the night before he died, he came to a garden alone was for Jesus when on the night before he died, he came to a garden and was left alone and abandoned by his closest friends. It was this way for Jesus that on the night before he died, he came to a garden and left arrested like a common criminal. Jesus, on the night before he died, came to a garden and in anguish and heartbreak, through whimpers, said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. If you have a Bible with you this morning, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 26. Pull out your phone, Google it, grab a Bible under the seat. Um, Matthew chapter 26, and I'm going to take you from Sunday to Thursday. On Palm Sunday, which is what we remember today, Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones the truth tellers and executes the troublemakers, and he enters the city and he is greeted with cries of Hosanna, Hosanna. It's a Hebrew phrase that morphed in meeting. It, in the Psalms, it, it means help. It's a cry for helps. In the Psalms, it is the word that you say when you are drowning. But by the time of the New Testament, by the time of Jesus, this word means something more like what you say when you are drowning and you see the lifeguard swimming toward you. It means salvation is here at last. The people are lining the streets of Jerusalem as Jesus enters in. They are laying their cloaks on the ground. They are laying palm branches on the ground and for him, before him. It's how you greeted conquering heroes in the first century. Imagine 
those shots of the victory parade in Cleveland after the Cavs won the national championship. To add to the significance, Jesus borrows from Zechariah, in fact, fulfills the words of the prophet Zechariah, who said, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem. He is greeted by cries of salvation is here, of celebration, of triumph, as their promised king rides into the city. But the triumph and celebration of Sunday morning quickly gives way to the agony and isolation of Thursday. On Thursday, Jesus gathers to himself his 12 disciples for a final meal. And I don't know if your family is like my family, but last things always have more significance. And actually, when my mom was in charge of the last things, there were a lot of last things. This is Kyle's last week before he goes to college. This is Kyle's last Wednesday before he goes to college. This is Kyle's last meal before he goes to college. This is Kyle's last meal of his first Christmas break from home from college. This is Kyle's last vacation with us as part of our family. This is Kyle's last vacation with us before he gets married. This is Kyle's last vacation before uh, they have kids. This is, I mean, it's just, you know, the lasts. But they always are more poignant, lasts, unless you have 50 of them in my family. They start to flatten out. Sorry, Mom, love you. This last meal is interrupted first by an argument over who is the greatest, this after Jesus just washed his disciples' feet in a stunning display of servanthood. Then the meal is interrupted when Judas Iscariot, who has betrayed Jesus into the hands of the rulers and authorities, abruptly runs out of the meal. And by the time dinner is over that Thursday night, Jesus' time on earth is rapidly drawing to a close. So Jesus takes the 11 remaining disciples to a familiar place of rest. And we read this in Matthew chapter 26. Let me get there. Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled, and he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you could not watch with me one hour. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. For the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So, leaving them, again, he went away and prayed for a third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus comes to a place called Gethsemane, a small wooded grove on the western slopes of the Mount of Olives. Would anybody like to guess what is grown on the Mount of Olives? If you guessed anything but olives, you were wrong. So close, I know. Man, the Bible's hard sometimes, right? You know? Scholars suspect that this little piece of property was owned. That was funny, grapes. Um, 
So scholars suspect this little piece of property was owned by one of Jesus' wealthier followers, and it's a place that kind of becomes a base of operations for Jesus and the disciples in the latter part of the Gospel of Matthew. It's a place that they keep coming back to over and over again. So the night before he's about to die, Jesus comes to this place of rest and respite to prepare himself for what is about to happen. In his own words, this is what is about to happen. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death. Jesus has come to a garden called Gethsemane, a word that means olive press. This is intentional. Here he comes to a place where olives are crushed for their precious oil, and Jesus, the Son of God, will be crushed by the weight of what is about to happen to him, about what he's about to endure. And it is almost more than he can take. Notice how Jesus describes his emotional state in in verse 38. He says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. In the sentence before, Matthew says he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Uh, These words of Jesus' emotional state drive the narrative of Matthew 36, 26, Matthew 26, 36 through 46. But the ESV kind of glosses over the intensity of the emotions. Really what these words mean is that Jesus is in terrible distress and misery and is crushed with anguish. Jesus' heart is breaking. So what has him so disturbed? Jesus has made his mission and purpose remarkably clear. He says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick do, and I've come, I have come to call the righteous, not the sin, I've not come to, somebody say, help him, Jesus. Um, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick do, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. In eternity past, God who we confess in a profound mystery, exists eternally in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In eternity past, God the Son, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit created a plan to save the world. They saw humanity's inevitable fall from grace. And instead of choosing to prevent it, God instead, among his divine counsel, decided to hatch a plan to save people from their sins, to redeem humankind from that fall. It was agreed, it was agreed on before stars were spoken into motion that in the fullness of time, God the Son would come, that he would be born of a woman, that he would be born of a virgin, and that he would suffer for righteousness' sake. It was agreed before any living creature took its first breath that God the Son would suffer as a common criminal, would die, and would rise again. And now this plan that has been in action since eternity past has been in motion since God called Abraham to himself and then Moses and the prophets and the kings all the way through the Old Testament. This plan now is reaching its fruition, reaching its height, reaching its climax in the life and ministry of Jesus. And Jesus is within, like, within just striking distance, within striking distance of the end of death, of the end of sin, of casting out the devil. And yet for this one moment in the Garden of Gethsemane, for this one moment, 
Jesus, who is both fully God and fully human, and thus fully able to save us from our sins and to restore the world to rights, for this one moment we see in Jesus something that looks a whole lot like doubt. We see something that looks a whole like a whole lot like doubt, and Jesus enters into the garden and says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You know, we've been exploring, this is our final week in exploring the nature of doubt. And our assertion has been that faith is not measured by psychological certainty, which is good because the one thing that we see Jesus lacking here in Matthew 26 is psychological certainty. Instead, Instead, faith is defined by a steady walk, hand in hand, with a God who is beyond our understanding, who will at times surprise and frustrate and disappoint us. But doubt is actually an invitation to lean in, to draw nearer. Doubt is a necessary part of the human experience. And so here before our eyes is Jesus in his humanity experiencing just this kind of doubt. As he comes to terms with what will what it will take to make the long, arduous journey from Thursday to Sunday. I'm not sure if this is entirely heretical, but I'm gonna go ahead and say it anyway. It might we could say then that it was one thing for in eternity past, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, to commit to this plan to accomplish salvation for us. It was another thing for God the Son who is also the son of man in his humanity and in the flesh to recognize what purchasing salvation for us would cost him. Jesus on Thursday night is coming to terms with what it will mean to have all that is evil and wicked in the world rush upon his flesh at one time. Jesus is coming to terms with what it means to bear the weight of every Holocaust death, of every rape, every incest, Every abuse, every click of pornography, every word of gossip, isn't it frustrating that a word of gossip and a Holocaust death are equally vile in God's eyes? Jesus is coming to terms with what bearing the sin of the world in his flesh will cost him. He is coming to terms with what it means to participate in what we call the great exchange when Paul says, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, seeing what it means to take all that is evil and wicked and wrong in the world on himself, to drink the cup of this suffering is what he calls it. On that Thursday night, Jesus has what looks a lot like a crisis of nerve. He has what looks a lot like a crisis of faith. What is being asked of him is so difficult that he goes to his father and he says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but as you will. You know, reading this passage in Matthew 26 is a study of keeping track of what is said and what is not said. It is a study of looking at what is reported and what is not reported. So what is reported is that Jesus goes to his father not once, 
not twice, but three times before he can fully surrender himself and fully steal himself to take the journey he is about to take. It is reported that Jesus is so desperate that he goes before the Father and lays down in front of him. This is called praying prostrate, not praying prostate. There's an extra R in there to keep you guessing. Prostrate. It is when it was really important to the Jewish imagination that you do with your body that what you do with your words. So it's one thing to stand and pray. It's another thing to sit in a comfy chair and pray. It is another thing to kneel and pray. It is another thing in desperation to lay flat on the ground before God. A remarkable gesture of humility and need. This is how Jesus goes and prays before his father. He lies flat on his face before his God and before his father. Luke, one of Jesus' friends who later writes about this incident, also reports this. Look at this one. It's um, the one with the blood on it there. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, Luke is not being hyperbolic. He is not speaking in metaphor. Luke is a doctor. He is reporting Jesus' psychological and physical condition. Jesus suffers, according to Luke, from a condition known as hematohydrosis. Hematohydrosis, it's been documented in medical journals, where a person under such stress such overwhelming anguish, something happens in the blood vessels of their head that causes blood to seep out and through. Jesus is so profoundly distressed that he sweats blood. Matthew also reports that when Jesus was at his greatest need, when Jesus in his humanity was at his weakest and all he wanted was the care and companionship of friends, that the men closest to him, these 11 guys, Jesus spends about 50, 60, 70% of his three years in public ministry investing in 12 people. Have you ever thought about how stupid that sounds? Why didn't Jesus wait to come until the age of social media? Because we've all been on social media and know that we don't believe a word anything anybody says on there, right? Jesus invests in 12 guys. He's already lost one. How's he doing so far? He takes the three that he's closest with, Peter, James, and John. Peter is the one that he makes first among the apostles. John is the one whom he loved best. He takes these three guys to be with him and support him, to watch and pray while Jesus wrestles this out with his father. And they fall asleep on the job. They fall asleep on the job. Jesus comes to the disciples, finds them sleeping. He says, so you could not even watch with me one hour? By the way, did you notice that Jesus acts like one hour of prayer isn't that big of a deal? And after like four minutes, I'm like, squirrel, right? Like I'm the dog and up. Could you not watch with me one hour? I mean, those words just drip with not just like disappointment. It's not scolding. Doesn't it like drip with like personal woundedness on Jesus's part? You could not watch with me one hour. Watch and pray that you may not enter a temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. In verse 43, that he finds them sleeping again. Like every time he goes to find them, they're sleeping. And there's an irony here that I'm still struggling to put into words. And you watch Jesus in Matthew 26 wrestle it out with God, and he wins victory over his flesh by the spirit. Meanwhile, his disciples, just a few feet away, are losing the battle of the flesh. Jesus has a victory in an area that they fail in, even here. 
So Matthew tells us that Jesus is abandoned by his friends. Luke tells us that Jesus was so distressed that he sweat blood. Matthew says that lying face down before his father, not once, not twice, but three times, Jesus pleaded with his father, pleaded for the cup of suffering to pass him by. But what Matthew does not tell us, none of the gospel writers tell us, what conversation did Jesus have with his father? All we know is that Jesus went away for one hour and comes back from one hour of prayer and we get one sentence. Not as I will, but as you will. As Jesus lays prostrate before his father, what did the father say? Was the voice so sweet that it hushed the birds? Was it the voice of woe? When God reminded Jesus that Jesus belonged to him, did that sound like good news or bad news? We don't know. All we know is what Jesus said. Not as I will, but as you will. Your will be done. As the people of Jesus, we have long confessed a mystery. That Jesus is the Son of God and the Son of Man. That he is mysteriously but undeniably 100% human, 100% God, 100% of the time. But here in Matthew 26, it's almost like we get a glimpse of Jesus' humanity and divinity wrestling it out in real time. And in these moments, Jesus comes face to face with the enormity of what is before him. And the weight of suffering that he is about to endure comes crashing down on him, causing agony and distress so real, it causes a rare medical condition to come upon him. Here in the Garden of Gethsemane, the garden where olives are crushed and crushed, the Son of God and the Son of Man is crushed by the weight of the evil in the world. And it causes him, not for the last time, to bleed. Yet in this garden where Jesus prays against a backdrop of snoring disciples, he resolves to press more into the profound mystery of his own death. Jesus entrusts himself and all he is radically and totally and utterly to the care of his father. Let me say that again because that's really what we see happening here. In the midst of his doubt, in the midst of his anguish, Jesus entrusts himself and all he is radically and utterly and totally into the care of his father. That's what's happening here. And he does this simply by saying, not as I will, but as you will. Not as I will, but as you will. Jesus, in this passage, shows us a way through our doubt. And let me be clear about something. When it comes to doubt, the only way out is the way through. The only way out is the way through. You can press abort and eject and leave that hanging chad somewhere along the story of your life, but it will not go away on its own. Doubt is like the medical condition a college freshman has that he keeps ignoring and says, it'll go away on its own. It won't. It'll fester. The only way out is the way through. The only way out is the way through. Jesus is totally, utterly, and viscerally gripped by his doubts, but he radically and totally and utterly entrusts himself to his father's care. And despite the questions, despite the profound pain and agony, agony, Jesus entrusts himself to his father's care. Y'all, there's going to be moments where you are profoundly and viscerally and utterly and totally gripped by doubt. You will be betrayed. 
you'll be diagnosed with cancer. You will lose a child or a grandchild. You will lose a friend. You will be imprisoned by an eating disorder or by depression or by anxiety. You will be imprisoned in the long-term illness of a loved one. These experiences, if we are honest, and I think this series has enabled honesty, or at least I hope, these experiences leave us with massive questions about the goodness of God. Massive questions about his character. But Jesus himself shows us the way through when we have these questions. And the way through is totally and utterly and radically entrusting ourselves to our Father's care. Saying simply, not as I will, but as you will. Or in the words of one desperate father, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus comes to a garden alone. And the night around him is falling. And just after he picks himself up off the ground for the third time, Judas the betrayer comes with armed guards to take Jesus away. Jesus is beaten to a bloody pulp and hung on a cross to die. And and understand that to die by crucifixion is to die by slow asphyxiation. The way that a body hangs while being crucified closes the airway. And the only way to get air is to pull yourself up by nails that are running through, probably not your hands because it would rip, but through your wrists and your feet, to pull yourself up to take a breath. It's, it's the slow death of asphyxiation. And Jesus, one ragged breath at a time, dies. Tim Keller says that the God of the Bible takes our misery and suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it on himself. The God of the Bible takes our misery and suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it on himself. Dorothy Sayers, and I've showed you this quote. I can't get away from it. I feel like I'm being not all that creative. But the incarnation means for us that for whatever reason God chose to let us fall, to suffer, to be subject to sorrows and death, he has nonetheless had the honesty and courage to take his own medicine. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He himself has gone through the whole of human existence from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. He was born in poverty and suffering infinite pain all for us, thought it well worth his while. As Jesus comes to the garden, what we see is God taking our sin and suffering on himself. As Jesus comes to the garden, we see God taking his own medicine. As we see Jesus come to the garden, we see him exacting from himself exactly what he exacts from us. This is what makes Jesus, in the words of the book of Hebrews, someone who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he's been there. Because Jesus knows what it is to be anguished and distressed, Jesus can draw near to us in our anguish and distress with true tenderness. Because Jesus knows what it is to be abandoned by his friends and betrayed into the hands of his enemies, he really is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Because Jesus knows what it is to doubt, he can sympathize with our weakness and move toward us in wisdom and understanding because doubts are, after all, his very own messengers to the honest about the things that are not yet but must be understood. Palm Sunday will slip into Easter someday, and here's what we will find next week. And Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Man, is not just able to fully sympathize. 
but because he is like us in every way and yet without sin, because he is God in the flesh, he is not just able to fully sympathize, he is able to fully save. He is able to fully save, or in the words of the book of Hebrews, therefore he is able to save completely, save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. He always lives to intercede God, your God, is able to fully sympathize and fully save because he came to a garden alone, walked out into a grave and out of that grave. Let's pray. Jesus, you are so, goodness, you're just so kind, aren't you? man church I, I just hope you know that I feel like Jesus wants you to know today that he loves you he loves you he uh, he sees you and Jesus because you became sin when you knew no sins so that we might become God's righteousness you are so worthy of our lives and our time and our affection and our attention And so call us into something deeper with yourself. Call us into clearer thinking and more passionate worship. Call us into more integrated lies, lives so that we might be your people following in the way of a Jesus who suffered and was victorious so that even in our suffering, we might be victorious. That's so good. So good. You're so worthy, Jesus. Would you stand as we sing together? This is a song that Julia found. And it's been a particular, Julia has been a big fan of this song for like ever. And uh, so we introduced it at Night of Prayer and we're excited to have you sing it tonight as we just celebrate some things that are true this morning. So, Julia. So, there's no good way to transition to this. So there's a donkey outside for you to take some selfie. There's like no... There's no spiritual like pivot, right? So there's that. We're gonna do an egg home with kids. Good Friday at seven, Easter Sunday at eleven fifteen. I love the snot out of you. And you're not getting rid of me. Peace. We'll see you next time.